Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Roisin Ingle. On today's show, Jennifer Ryan talks to Winnie Bianyi Ma, the Executive Director of Oxfam International. They talk about Winnie's early life growing up in Uganda under the oppressive regime of General Idi Amin, her activism at university, the role she played in writing the country's constitution and her work on global gender inequality. Winnie has just begun her second term as executive director of Oxfam International and she speaks to the women's podcast about the work they do. And she also talks about the sexual exploitation scandal involving some of Oxfam's staff in Haiti, which came to light last year and how the charity is still working to recover from the fallout. Winnie Bianyima, you have been in Dublin for the past few days with an incredibly packed itinerary. And so I want to thank you, first of all, for making some time to speak to the Women's Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jennifer. Well, mm. I want to learn a little bit about you before we get into your work with Oxfam. Mm. You're from Uganda. What were you like growing up? Oh, I was born in a little village in the southwest and my parents had been school teachers. I grew up uh, post-independence. I was born just before independence and... Four years after independence, my country fell into conflict. And for the next 20, 25 years, we were going through civil wars. So I grew up under a very brutal dictatorship of a man called Idi Amin. And I saw some really bad things happening, even to young girls, to my own age mates, to parents of my friends. It was a horrible time. And I grew up angry. By the time I was 16, 17, I was a really angry girl because I just could not accept the injustices, the brutality of, of the regime. And my parents wouldn't let us accept it. They didn't allow us to accept it as normal. They were activists themselves, and so they encouraged us to stand for what is right, to be safe, but not to accept unfairness, injustice. So by the time I was 17, I was a, quite a challenging <laughs> a girl, a young woman who had strong opinions and who was... Um, ready to assert herself. So at university, I joined other students and we, we did some action that was to protest something on the campus. But what resulted was the soldiers coming in to attack us. So I fled the country and I became a refugee in England. So I grew up in uh, difficult times but protected by my parents, empowered by them to stand up for justice. 
and by the schools I went to. Actually, I was educated by Irish nuns who gave us a safe space and who encouraged us in the same way to be assertive and to, to stand up for justice. And so you studied engineering and you worked uh-huh. for Ugandan Airlines, I mm-hmm. think. Mm-hmm. But obviously you were always political, it sounds like. So it probably wasn't a huge leap that then you got involved in politics in Uganda mm. and you served for 11 years, I think, in Parliament. Mm, that's true. And tell me about that. So how did that come about? Yeah, that's also a result of the political activism. Because when I went to England, I arrived there as a refugee, had a refugee scholarship, was fortunate and went to university, and I channeled all the anger I had against the regime into student activism. I joined the anti-apartheid movement, which was very active at Manchester University where I studied. I joined uh, women's rights organizations. I joined the Pan-African organization. The Labour Party, I became an activist for my local MP, Gerard Kaufman. So all that activism made me ready to participate in restoring democracy in Uganda. So I became part of a Uganda dissident group in England. So when the time came and the dictatorship fell, we were ready to return. And when I returned, I already knew in my mind that engineering wasn't where I was going to apply myself, but that I was going to be in political struggles and fighting for justice. I was already a seasoned political activist and um, ready to be part of shaping a post-conflict Uganda. That's how I transitioned from engineering to to social justice activism. So I I was elected to, the first election I won was to make a new constitution post a war we had fought, a civil war we had fought, had been part of the revolution, and we'd won the war. And we had promised that we would make, would consult everyone, make a new constitution, and introduce a, a constitutional democracy. So when it was time to elect a parliament to make the new constitution, I went and contested. And it wasn't difficult to win my election, but it was quite an amazing election because I was contesting at a time when very few women stood in elections in my country. And there were questions about, why do you want to take the job of this man? This man is doing very well. Why do you want a man's job? And and we had quarters. We had introduced quarters. There were some women's seats, special reserve seats for women, So they kept asking me to go and compete for a woman's seat. And I kept explaining, no, I want another woman who's not got strong political skills, who's new to take that seat, and I'm going to contest for a mainstream seat so that we have more seats. The reserved seats were going to give us about 14% of the seats in the parliament. But I wanted to be an additional seat because I, I saw that I, I was even stronger than this minister whom I was contesting against. And indeed, I won it. And I won it on a women's rights ticket. I excited women about what the new constitution could mean for the lives of women. So I talked a lot about women's rights in marriage, women's girls' rights to education, 
women's health, incomes for women, violence against women, and how I was going to use the Constitution to win these rights for women. And often men said, so you want to represent women, you don't want to represent men? I said, no, 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 I represent everybody, but I want women to understand what is there for them. So I got a huge vote from women and young people and one with a landslide. And when I was elected, then the women in the assembly, who were 51, then chose me to be the leader of the Women's Caucus. And we made a constitution that was really, really uh, cutting edge, frontier in terms of women's rights, even globally. Because this is a constitution that guaranteed equality of men and women under the law, in citizenship, in opportunities, but also guaranteed quotas and affirmative action for women, not only in politics, but in education, in all sectors, as a way to uh, address historical imbalances. And you continue then that gender-based activism beyond in, at a global level in your work mm. for the United Nations and mm. other organisations. Mm. Tell me a little bit about what were some of your proudest achievements from those times before you came to Oxfam? You know, I, I didn't know that what we were doing in Uganda was um, new and exciting and inspiring for other women. But it so happened that we were making this new constitution at the time of Beijing, the Fourth World Conference on Women that happened in China in 1995. So all of a sudden, there was so much attention to what we're doing and how we're doing it, how we're laying our strategies to win rights for women. So before I knew it, I found myself being invited all over Africa to support women, to influence their parliaments, because Africa was coming out of dictatorship and building new democracies, multi-party democracy. So we ended up building a women's rights organization to support ourselves to take those rights in the Constitution into laws, into budgets, into... And then we found ourselves now sharing this across Africa, then taking it to the global stage, the, the, the other regions took notice of our achievements. So some of my proudest achievements, really I think the proudest one I have, I would say is that um, we built a women's organization, a feminist organization called Forum for Women in Democracy. It is now 20, how many years old? 22, 23 years old. It's one of the leading women's rights organizations in Uganda. And it has a strong uh, role in the whole of Africa region and globally. For example, it was a pioneer. We were pioneers in introducing gender budgeting, gender responsive budgeting. We learned from South Af our sisters in South Africa. We're the second on the continent and even... In Asia, it was not yet popular. And we took the show on the road and showed so many other people in other countries, other activists, how to build alliances with civil society, with parliamentarians, with key reformers in government to transform the way budgets are made. 
because budgets have traditionally been made. The default person in a budget is a man. He's, it is assumed that a household is headed by a man. He's the breadwinner. He's the decision maker. And budgets are shaped around the interests and the needs of men and increasingly of rich men. Ordinary, not ordinary men, but we were pushing governments to think about the different needs of men and women, girls and boys, and to address them in allocations and economic policies. This is one of our biggest achievements. And you now have begun your second term as the executive director of Oxfam International. Yeah. And some of the Oxfam research that I was looking up um, shows that uh, about extreme inequality, it shows that just 26 billionaires, nearly all men, yes. uh, own as much wealth as the bottom half mm. of the world's population, which is 3.8 billion people. Mm. What effect does this sort of inequality have on the world? Huge, disastrous. It's really threatening human progress, this kind of extreme inequality. It hasn't always been like that. It's been increasing and it's increasing very fast and we need to stop it and reverse it. This is part of what excites me at Oxfam, that we have focused on tackling extreme inequality and we have every year brought out more evidence about how it is growing, the reasons why it is growing and what could be done to tackle it. And now... I'm excited to see that there's a growing consensus against extreme inequality from Pope Francis to presidents like Obama who did a whole conference on it to leaders like the World Bank, Christine Lagarde, doing a lot of research to show how it slows growth, traps people in poverty, erodes democracies, traps women in inequality and in bad jobs, we're seeing more a, a growing consensus against it, but in terms of understanding that it is wrong, it is bad, and it is slowing growth and trapping people in uh, in human in in lives of indignity, but we are not seeing enough action. So now I see our role as as Oxfam as that of building huge alliances with workers, with young people, with women, to tackle this, to push governments and business. Because we know why. We know that governments have been, uh, democracies have been taken over by the interests of the rich and the big companies. They've made policies and they are running economies for the interests of the rich. They don't tax the rich. They tax... They've shifted taxation to indirect taxations that rely on taxing consumables and therefore pass the tax burden to poorer people and give rich people and companies a pass and therefore don't have enough money to plow into public services that lift most people from poverty, that lift women, that take care of the drudgery of care work that women bear, that take away 
the burden of caring for the elderly, for people with disabilities, so that women's lives can be free to also earn, to be equal, to participate in society. Because it's fair to say that women and girls are the biggest losers when Absolutely. it comes to this inequality. Of course, when governments run austerity programs and invest so little in public services, everybody loses, but women and girls more, especially in poor countries like mine, Uganda, where even the basics of life depend on the labor and the time of women, like fetching water, fetching wood for cooking, plowing in the garden, harvesting, grinding, all this hard, long work, long hours of work is done by women and girls. So, but even here, it's women in the rich countries who will go shopping, who will drop the kids at school, who take them to the clinic, who take care of the elderly grandma, and if all that support that should come from the public purse and from business isn't being provided, a woman's ability to be productive, to earn and to be in society and to lead and to have leisure is taken away. Her opportunity is taken away. So inequality is driven by those choices of governments not to invest in public services that level the ground between men and women and rich and poor, not taxing the rich and passing the tax on the poor through indirect taxation, and not paying workers living wages, fair wages, maximizing for shareholders. The business model is a greedy model, and it's governments who allow it. Can I ask you about that, actually, because I know Oxfam publishes a global index that ranks government's commitments yes. to tackling inequality. And Ireland ranks at 99 of 157 yeah. nations, which is and you know not why? good. And yeah. I know why. We have harmful tax practices yes. here. There are incentives that, mm -hmm. and loopholes that provide big corporations and richer households with sweeter deals, basically. Yes. Yes. So what, what, what would you say to the Irish government about that? Well, I didn't come here to lecture to the Irish government, <laughs> but I, I can make observations from our work. The commitment to reduce inequality does show where Ireland is doing well and where Ireland is not doing well and why it is a rich country but ranking low on the commitment to reduce inequality index. Ireland could do more. First of all, it could remove those incentives that make rich companies and rich people stash their money here because they are avoiding paying their fair share of taxes where they've earned their money. That's important because that means that it, Ireland would enable other countries to raise the money they need for the public services they need to give. But also, Ireland could tax more progressively, could pass the burden of tax more to rich people. Ireland, like many other countries around the world, has been reducing the taxation on wealth. Wealth is hardly taxed. There are very low taxes on inheritance, on property, on even corporate taxation. These taxes have come down. And there is room to increase them. Even the IMF has been saying it, that there is room to tax the rich more and take the burden off poorer people, remove this v VAT, but tax wealth. 
So that's something that would put Ireland higher on this indic- on this list, but also on workers. Their right to unionize is important because when workers don't have a voice, that's when you get this greedy business model that maximizes for shareholders before workers, suppliers, farmers who supply them. This is something that has to change. These companies have had a field day because they have more voice in decision-making. They influence legislation more than ordinary people. So shifting that, making uh, businesses... Business can be regulated. You can ask them to have a a ratio of the highest paid and the lowest paid. You can ask them to respect a certain ratio. Why? Why would... Can you believe this, that a garment worker in Bangladesh would take more than about 200 years to earn what the top CEO of the garment company say, which ones do you have here, Zara or H&M, earns in four days. A garment worker would need, a woman stitching our clothes would need almost 200 years to earn what the CEO of Zara gets in four days. Where's the justice there? So we need to change the business model, and I'm excited about working on that. I like telling off business people because they don't need a law. Their own consciences should tell them that wealth of the business is being made, created not just by the CEO and the directors and the shareholders. They are workers, they are suppliers, they are consumers. There's the environment. They should plow back money into all those stakeholders. Right now, they don't see them. They just see their shareholders. So I do like whipping them, telling them off, because I think morality should drive them more than saying we respect the law, because we know the law is not moral. They are the ones who've shaped the laws to their advantage. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. I couldn't speak to you today without referring to scandals at at Oxfam concerning the use of sex workers in in Haiti and in Chad and subsequent allegations about cover-ups in the investigations. Mm. I know you weren't in your current role at the time of those, but you were when uh, the revelations became public knowledge. So I I want to know how difficult uh, was that for you personally and Mm. also what's being done at Oxfam to make sure this doesn't happen ever again? It was a very, very painful experience because Oxfam stands for justice, for human rights. And at the heart of our work are women's rights. Yet we were found that some of our staff in Haiti had abused, actually the word should be exploited, had exploited vulnerable women in Haiti at a time of crisis. It was a painful uh, fact to live with. And 
we lost the trust of many of our supporters. We had to work hard, and we are still working hard, to restore that trust. And that meant that we needed to go to take a hard look at ourselves and say, why did this happen? And when it happened, why did we not deal with it in the strongest possible way? Because we saw that there were weaknesses in how we we dealt with the, these cases of the seven people whom we did investigate, actually, and find that they were they fell short of our values and our code of conduct, but we didn't deal with them as we should have. So we have gone through a very deep and internal process of self-examination and of challenging ourselves on the culture, the internal culture of our organization, because we know that we need we needed stronger rules. We've put those in place. We've trained investigators. We've put in place uh, systems for capturing, reporting, and investigating. But we know that ultimately it's not policing people that will make us the organization that we want, that lives our values. It is the culture of the staff. It is how people are how people see themselves becoming real cadres of social justice. So we've put a lot of investment into changing the culture of our organization, challenging ourselves on how we use the power we have, the power of the resources we have, the power of our knowledge, the power of our evidence. When we go out there and meet those who are powerless and we want to stand with them, why do we then why did we then turn into their exploiters dealing with that power so i'm happy today that very many of the people who supported us are still with us and have worked with us particularly feminist organizations helping us to find our way to recovery We've, we've worked with so many feminists and they are still working with us in training, sensitizing and looking at how the workplace can be made a safe place for women and for all. We, are, uh, we have, a, I commissioned a very eminent group of people, human rights, women's rights leaders, global leaders, to as a commission to investigate, not to investigate, to inquire and to tell us what we need to do. They are about to finish their work. And I can already see from what they have been telling us over the course of the year that we are in a different place. We've walked with them and we've made many changes and we are a better organization in terms of how we are aware of our power and how we use it internally. So it, it, it was a tough, tough time, but it started with acknowledging that we had failed and then taking real steps to change ourselves, challenge ourselves and walk our talk. And I think we are in a better place, although we still have a journey, but... We are a safer place, a place where women's rights are, are... We talk about them all the time. We talk about women's rights, women's safety all the time so that we remind ourselves that 
we are an organization for old people and particularly for the more vulnerable women, disabled, racial minorities, gay and lesbian people. Our sense of who we are and who has the power is stronger now. And with regards to the uh, donations side of things, I know uh, you, unfortunately Oxfam lost a couple of kind of mm. high-profile supporters around that time. How far along that, that road to recovery are you in, in restoring public faith? Yeah, we are an organisation that really thrives on the contributions of ordinary people, teachers, bus drivers, our young people, volunteers who run our shops. This is where... Most of our resources come from. We did lose many who were disappointed with us. But I have to say that the majority stayed with us. And we are seeing that in many places, new ones are coming on, new ones who are inspired by our efforts. And, and the fact that we stayed on the job, we did everything possible to make sure that having failed in Haiti in 2011, that today those who are suffering, who are hit by disasters, who are hit by conflict, are not losing because Oxfam isn't working. So we, we kept the show on the road. Our work to save lives, our humanitarian work, was even more this year than the year before. So that, I think, has made many people see that we are a strong and a resilient organization and we can recover. And the humility of accepting our mistake also made some uh, trust us that we admitted and we, we, we embarked on a recovery path. So uh, uh, the government of Ireland, for example, has been one of the, the, the governments that trusted us and asked us to take the actions that are needed to recover, but didn't walk away from us. There were many that were that stayed with us, but asked us to show them how we are recovering, and, and we are very transparent. We show them where we are and where we haven't got to yet. So on the whole, I think we've come out humbler, but and with, we, we, yes, lost some money, but... Our choices were that if we are losing some money, we will absorb the pain in what you might call our kitchen, where we do the work of preparing, but we must make sure that on the front lines where people suffer, that work is never cut. So, so we, does that mean that wages we, within the company or things like that took a hit in order to absorb yes, the losses? Yes, some, some parts of Oxfam froze wages and didn't give an increase. Some took a cut. Actually, I asked my team to take a, a pay cut last year. And, and, and in other offices, we did some downsizing in headquarters that meant that we pulled many pieces of work together. We also stopped some work that we considered non-essential, but we kept the show on the road in our countries, in uh, places where there are disasters and conflict. We stayed there and we did the job. And I think that has also been 
why many of our supporters and new ones are coming on board. To go back to um, global inequality, uh, I, I looked again, this is from your speech yesterday, I looked at some of these statistics in it. it says, at the current rates of change, it'll take 202 years to close the gap in economic opportunities between women and men. And that was according to the World Economic Forum. Does a statistic like this shake your confidence that we can really achieve a more human, dignified, feminist economy, or does it make you even more determined to sort it out? <laughs> yeah, it, it makes me more determined. Because, you know, if you're an activist, a serious activist, you always have to have a time perspective. There are things that you say you're going to win in one year, in five years, and in a lifetime. And there are things that you say... I'm not going to see this in my lifetime, probably, but my daughter should and my son should. So having many time perspectives is important as an activist. So I always answer such a question by telling about myself. My grandmother was born in 1905, beginning of the 20th century. She was married at 14 her husband died when she was 22, and she was inherited as a widow by her stepson who abused her. That's the life of my grandmother at the beginning of the 20th century. Inherited, abused, married at 14. Now, my mother, her daughter, went on to become a primary school teacher. She married. She was in a monogamous marriage. My grandmother was in a poly polygamous marriage. My mother had seven children, gave up her teaching job to raise us, but went on to become a women's rights activist. She fought early marriage. She fought for kid, girls to go to school. Here I am because my mother was a primary school teacher, had some education and understood the importance of girls' education and girls' empowerment. And look at me, her daughter. I am a Ugandan woman, an engineer. I got an en two engineering degrees, and I am sitting at the helm of a global organization, Oxfam. This is in 100 years. Hmm? This is in one century. Three women see the opportunities, the differences, so it might be looking like it's 200 years before we close the gender pay gap. First of all, it doesn't have to be 200 years. We can do this in the next 10, 20, 30 years. But I don't become impatient and frustrated because I can see that women have won rights in the 20th century. I am a, a, a product of this huge change in women's lives. And we can take it further and we can shorten the, the time spans to more progress. So I'm determined, I'm optimistic about women's rights. Winnie Bianyima, Executive Director of Oxfam International, thank you for speaking to the Women's Podcast. Thank you. 
And that's it for today. Thanks to our guest this week, Winnie B. Anima. And remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcast or you can email us on the Women's Podcast at irishtimes.com. Also, we do enjoy a bit of praise from time to time. So if you like what we do, then head along to iTunes and give us a review. The podcast is produced by myself, Roisin Ingle, and by Jennifer Ryan with JJ Vernon on sound. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Kara Berry, host of Everyone's Business But Mine, and I am an all-inclusive addict. Enter Club Med, the best all-inclusive for you and your family. With resorts worldwide from their family flagship resort, Club Med Punta Cana, to their only mountain resort in Canada, Club Med Quebec, they have everything you need to relax. With their 20-plus sports activities, wellness programs, you can dine on delicious cuisine and make memories with your family. So book your next getaway with Club Med. Visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.